You're listening to the Celestial Citizen Podcast, and I'm your host, Britt Duffy Adkins. Celestial Citizen is a platform for promoting a more equitable and just vision of planetary settlement beyond Earth. This podcast seeks to provide an opportunity for conversation about how to be a better interplanetary citizen and responsible steward of Earth and the cosmos. By engaging the global public, providing greater access to the space industry, and amplifying a more diverse set of voices, progress in space can equate to progress on Earth. We who are bursting with stardust can become celestial citizens. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Dr. Angel Abud Madrid. You need scientists, you need engineers, you need economists and policy analysts and lawyers. Everybody will have to work together to develop resources in space, just like we have done it on Earth. We'll discuss the innovative field of space resources and what it means to live off the land in outer space. For the 60 years that we have been sending rockets into space, we have launched everything from Earth. We depend 100% from our planet to explore, to do everything in space. And at some point, that only can take you so much. It's not a sustainable way to explore or to attempt to live off the planet. My guest on the show, Dr. Angel Abud Madrid, is the director of the Center for Space Resources at the Colorado School of Mines, where he leads a research program focused on the human and robotic exploration of space and the utilization of its resources. He is also the director of the Space Resources Graduate Program, where I'm currently pursuing a master's degree. The program seeks to educate scientists, engineers, economists, entrepreneurs, and policymakers in the field of extraterrestrial resources. He has more than 30 years of experience conducting experiments in NASA's low-gravity facilities, such as drop towers, parabolic flight aircraft, the space shuttle, and the International Space Station. Thanks for joining Celestial Citizen Podcast today, Angel. Hello, Brid. How are you? Good. Thanks for uh, joining us today. So, all right, Angel, I'll just get started here. Lots of questions. Let's start with, can you please explain what the study of space resources is all about and what you mean when you say living off the land in space? I think in order to do that, I think it is important to focus on the word resource. What is a resource? Here on Earth, without even going to space, this is an element that is of interest because it's important since on its utilization. You find an element of interest, could be a metal, a gas, or a particle, or molecule, or whatever it is. If it's not important for it to be used, then it's not a resource. That's how we on Earth determine metals or water or all of those things are resources because they're good for us. So for space, it's the same thing. Space resources are everything that is outside our Earth atmosphere in space that we can utilize. Could be for bringing them back to Earth or could be to use them in space. When I talk about living off the land in space, is to use that resource in space, not necessarily to bring it to Earth, because that allows you to live if you want to be on the moon or Mars, asteroids, or just an orbit. If you can use them there, that's what we refer to living off the land. 
And so what do space resources enable us to do in outer space that we otherwise wouldn't be able to? Just like on Earth, as we started moving to different places in our planet during human evolution, we started utilizing the local resources to allow us to live up the land, to develop technologies, to live in harsher environments, and to be able to expand and be able to work in different places. Same thing in space. What, what resources will enable us is to be able to work in those new environments. Uh, so far, for the 60 years that we have been sending rockets into space, we have launched everything from Earth. We depend 100% from our planet to explore, to do everything in space. And at some point, that only can take you so much. It's not a sustainable way to explore or to attempt to live off the planet. So the whole point is to use the local resources to cut our dependence, our umbilical core from Earth to be able to survive, to work, to thrive in those places by using the local resources without depending from importing everything from Earth. And why is it so important to future space exploration that we do decrease that dependency on Earth? And why is that also a good thing for Earth? It is important because without the local resources, it's impossible to have a base on the moon, let alone to have one on Mars. It will be extremely expensive, extremely risky to depend on Earth completely, and it's extremely energy intensive. So just from the point of view of economics, it just doesn't make sense to be sending everything from Earth. It is the same thing as on Earth. If I want to travel from where I live in Colorado to New York City or to where you are in California, I'm not going to carry with me a huge tank of gas to get me there, to move around where you live, and then to come back. That will make it extremely expensive, very heavy car and very inefficient. So at some point, it doesn't make economic sense. Same thing in space. You just cannot do it because it's not economically feasible to do that. So you have to rely on the local resources. It definitely creates quite the visual when you think about having to uh, travel with everything you own and might need on a journey. It's exhausting to even think about. So taking a step back, how did you get involved with this field in the first place? You know, Were you always interested in working with the space industry and space resources in particular? I was always interested in space, although space resources was not on my radar screen as a kid. You have to understand, uh, uh, I was born in 1961, on April of 1961, a couple of weeks after Yuri Gagarin went into space. This is important because that tells you how I grew up being influenced by the space program. I remember humans walking on the moon in 1969 and being influenced by that in terms of what I wanted to do when I grew up. Back then, it was hard for me to envision how to do it just because it, there were not many opportunities for me to do that. But I thought if I get involved in anything technical at some point in my life, I will get to work on space. Luckily, that happened. Once I started going to graduate school, there were opportunities to start working on human spaceflight, doing experiments in microgravity, the space shuttle, space station, and I, I got to be involved in space. But the concept of space resources, I was not aware of it until I met a gentleman came to uh, our school. He was retiring from Johnson Space Center. His name was Mike Duke. He was one of the pioneers of space resources. He had been thinking about this since the 60s. And he introduced me to this concept that I found fascinating because I thought this is probably the only way that we're going to be able to go to the next phase of space, just go from probes and, and mostly scientific exploration to really start enabling not just further exploration, but 
uh, more activities to help us start living in, in other places. And that's when I was introduced to this. Also, at the same time, we worked together to create the Center for Space Resources, and the rest is history. So it's been a little bit more than 20 years that I've been involved in this field. For any listeners that you know are very interested in pursuing careers focused around space resources, how would those students be best advised to pursue this field? You're asking me probably a, a tricky question because I will invite them to be part of our space resources program, which is uh, the first and still the only program in the world that focuses specifically on the study of space resources. That's one option because then you get exposed to all of the aspects on this very multidisciplinary field. But they can start working on any technical field that they want. The good thing about the space resources field is that it's extremely multidisciplinary. You need scientists, you need engineers, you need economists and policy analysts and lawyers. Everybody will have to work together to develop resources in space, just like we have done it on Earth. So if you are an expert in any of those fields, and then later on you want to be involved in it, then you can join by further studies. We offer a graduate program on that. So this is a way for you to bring your expertise and work on it. But again, if you're just an expert on any of those fields and then you want to become uh, involved in it, that's probably the suggested path. What do you say to people that believe that this is science fiction? What do you wish more of the general public knew about the field of space resources? Because of course, talking about some of these things, talking about utilizing resources in space and creating effectively like gas stations on the moon, for people that might not be exposed to the space industry, I mean, these are pretty wild ideas. They're quite futuristic. So what would you wish to communicate with more folks that might not necessarily already know about this field? I think that the last word that you use is the key. When people say that this is science fiction, and I have encountered many of those, and it's very understandable, but you mentioned the word futuristic. I think that's what they mean when they talk about this field, because there's nothing fictional about space resources in terms of science. This is something that we do every day here on Earth. Earth is a planet, and we have obtained resources. We have utilized them for millennia. And so we're just trying to do the same thing out in space. There are differences in terms of the environment. You're working on vacuum, on low gravity, and extreme temperatures. And there's differences in all of these destinations, the moon, Mars, and asteroids. But this is all doable technically. So there's nothing fictional or in terms of science or technology about extracting resources in space. What I understand from the position of many people is that this is very futuristic because they may feel it's difficult or that there's no justification for doing that. And I understand that. It will be quite challenging to do this. But so it has been in every human activity. You ask people in the early 1900s about flying, they will just say, this is crazy. This is only for birds. And it happened. If you had asked people in the early 1960s that we were going to the moon, you can just go to the newspapers and take a look at at what they were saying. This is crazy. That will never happen. Humans don't belong in space. Who knows what's going to happen to them in low gravity? And we did it. So this is just the next step. And it's actually a much doable field than what we were thinking about in the 60s. That was a just to leave Earth for the first time, that was unthinkable. Now it's just extending what we do on Earth and do it in space and doing it in such a way that it can be something that will help us for the next phase. In fact, I would say that the technology is not the issue. You're dealing here with things that make it economically feasible and justifiable, make it legal, fair, do it in a responsible and a sustainable way. Those are other challenges 
I would say that are even greater than the actual technology. Yeah. And I think one of the exciting opportunities is, you know, as you bring up sustainability, I think just by virtue of us learning how to have a sustained presence, there's a lot of things that we have to learn, a lot of technologies that we need to develop, which I think also have nice tie-ins back to earth where a lot of those technologies can be applied to earth as well. Because you really, to waste anything in space is, aside from the fact that it's a shame, it's also incredibly expensive. So us learning how to develop technologies that reduce our amount of waste in space also, I think, have far-reaching positive effects here on Earth as well. If you think that we have made a, a lot of progress in terms of renewable energy and recycling and all that on Earth, just think about what we have done on the space station or any place outside in space. There, you really, really have to be resourceful and think about everything that you can reuse, how to uh, turn trash and waste into energy, Probably that's one of the most challenging environmental problems that you can have, just sustaining life of humans in a harsh environmental space. So you're right, uh, everything that we do, and not just in low Earth orbit for the moon, we're going to have to be utilizing everything, the energy that we get there, the soil, recycling uh, elements that we brought there, because it's just so expensive and so difficult to bring things over there. So yes, all of that technology that we develop for space will be reflected on Earth. And in fact, we already have done that. We have 60 years of being in space and lots of things that we have developed for space has come down to Earth and we use them without knowing that it was developed for space. That's one of the very great benefits of the space program. So sidestepping a little bit here then, how does in-situ resource utilization, or I guess to put it more simply, the idea that you know you use resources where you find them in space, how does that support Artemis mission objectives? Yeah, you used the term there. It's a little bit technical in situ resource utilization or ISRU, something that we use in the community. But what it is, is just, you know, a Latin word in situ on-site resources that you can use locally for a variety of applications. So it's the living of the land concept. In terms of how this relates to the Artemis program, it's at the core of the Artemis program. If you are talking about building a base on the moon and make it sustainable, there is no way to do that without resources, period. If not, you will have to call it something else. If you want to have a sustainable presence of humans on the moon, you're not going to send them everything that they need from Earth. You're going to have to be resourceful and start looking of uh, how can I obtain the oxygen for breathing water for drinking or for making propellant. Do not think about bringing brick and mortar from the earth. Use it from the lunar soil. Uh, use the power that you have available. That's the only way that the Artemis program is going to be successful. So it's intimately connected to the objectives of Artemis. And do you think we're still on target for a 2024 human landing on the moon? That's just a date. It's all about resources, but economic resources. If you put enough of those, you can do whatever you want. We were able to get to the moon in eight years from nothing. So everything is doable. It's just what priorities are going to be, not just for, for the space program, but for the nation as a whole. If we want to do it, yes, it may take a couple more years if you want to balance other things. But key thing is that there's already an objective and a date has been set. It's always good to have a date. It's always good to have it more ambitious than actually pushing it down to the future so that you can work towards it. And if you skip a year or so, that, that's fine. But I think that it's very doable. 
And how do you think the change in administration is going to potentially impact space resources and space exploration more broadly? What direction do you hope to see take shape for the space industry from the Biden administration? Every change of administration brings change also on priorities of NASA. One has to be always cognizant that NASA is a branch of the government, especially it's of the president. It's a at the service of the interests of the country. Sometimes there is a misconception that NASA is a scientific agency just focused on science. It's not. I mean, it's, it's tied to the interest of the government and therefore it's tied to each administration. And so you see changes every time. Uh, sometimes we go for the moon and then the next one will try to go Mars. The other one may want to stay on low Earth orbit. So there may be changes and there have been in the past, but this time I think it's different. We are not focused on the moon right now because just somebody thinks it's better than others. I think now this is a worldwide effort. And it's not just certain parts of the government or certain parts of the American population that are focused on the moon. It's Russia and it's China and it's Europe and it's a dozen countries that are now focused on this that have intentions to get there. They already have missions. It is happening as we speak. A few weeks ago, we had a landing of a Chinese spacecraft that brought samples to Earth. So now the pressure is international. So I think that that restricts the agency on what it can do. If it decides to go somewhere else, somebody else is going to go to the moon. And I don't think we would like to let that happen for many reasons. So I think there's a big international push to be there. We are already in our path. Why not keep it going? Maybe tweak it a little bit here and there, but I think the objectives should be the same. And are there any specific space resources projects, planned missions, civil or commercial that you're particularly excited about? Yes, I am. And in fact, the first one that comes to mind is not even on the moon. It's actually on Mars, of all places. We are going to see the very first extraction of our resource in another planetary body. And this is part of the Mars 2020 mission that will land the Perseverance rover that on board has an experiment called MOXIE that will take the carbon dioxide of the atmosphere and extract from it oxygen, the very first element that we're going to extract from another planetary body that can be utilized, that could be a resource for many purposes. So I'm very excited about seeing that. That will really change our perspective of how we see the value of resources. For the first time, we're going to see, well, there's a tank of oxygen ready there for whoever wants to use it. And that's fantastic. So that's very exciting. And as exciting are the missions that are coming up for the moon. There's a swarm of missions that are going to be happening in the next two to five years, commercial from countries that are going to go to the moon exactly to start identifying the resource with a much better certainty to start extracting them and even prove their utilization. So I'm excited about missions in which, in fact, we are involved in at the Colorado School of Mines. We have a mission in which we're involved by December of 2022, in which we're going to go to the moon to start studying the geotechnical properties of the soil, which are important to inform us of how we later on can extract the resource. A year after that, in 2023, the Viper mission from NASA will be going to the permanent shadow regions and trying to extract the water ice. That will be an exciting demonstration too. Just imagine that you're extracting water from what was considered a bone dry object 50 years ago. That will be an exciting type of admission. So I'm really looking forward to those early missions because they're going to inspire us to keep going, 
to more complex systems for the extraction and utilization of, of resources. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about just the sheer number of planned missions for this upcoming decade, I mean, it's going to be a really big several years for space. And hopefully we continue at that pace as well. So going a little bit more in the direction of the commercial space industry, how are the commercial and civil sectors working together in the field of space resources? And would you say that any one party is leading the charge more than the other? No, I think they're going hand in hand here. And that has been very satisfying to see. In fact, this is nothing new. We have seen this throughout human history. Sometimes governments take the lead, but then immediately the commercial or the private sector has to come along to start working on in conjunction with the government. We've seen it on railroads, on airplanes, where the government took the lead and then the private sector came along. But this time, what we have seen is actually that the private sector has pushed the governments to work on space resources. This is very interesting on how they have come along and saying, this will actually help you, NASA, ESA, Russia, China, if we get involved because space agencies, you're great at building rockets and satellites, but you may not know how to extract resources and process them and utilize them. So if we can come along and help you, it will help you, space agency, because now you can all of a sudden be able to accomplish your dreams of having a planetary base or a lunar base, of carrying larger payloads or, or being able to give you propellant so that you can have your rockets flying for years in space without having to get rid of them. And for us, private sector, this could be an opportunity to develop a new commercial activities, lower the cost of access to space, lower the cost of doing anything up there, starting to offer more technologies that can actually benefit us directly on Earth and give us, us more opportunity to be up there. Think about just one example, uh, just transportation. It's so expensive to get things up in space that that's what has restricted us from more access. Just a few countries can access. Less than 600 people have actually gone into space. If you lower the transportation costs by utilizing propellant in space, all of a sudden you open a whole new frontier and who knows what can happen when that takes place. All of a sudden, all sorts of new activities come along and the private sector is great at creating those opportunities, but it will benefit space agencies at the same time. So they're working hand in hand and I think that's the way that it should continue. So are there a few commercial space companies that you think are going to be particularly interesting to follow in the next few years? You know, you hear about the large companies that are making a difference in terms of ushering us into this new phase of space. I call it taking us from the adolescence of space to a more mature field. We are going to enter with space resources a time in which the space program will benefit tremendously like I said, by allowing us to go further and staying longer in planetary bodies. And so you hear about the launch companies at this point. Everybody has heard about SpaceX and the plans from Blue Origin to lower costs to lower orbit and the ambitious plans from companies like SpaceX to even take us to Mars. But what you're seeing now is the rise of dozens and dozens of companies, small companies, a lot of startups that are positioning themselves in what we call the value chain of space resources. The value chain is the same thing that we follow on Earth. You have companies that will be focusing on the exploration part, just identifying the resource. Companies that will be handling data just to letting everybody know what type of resource are out there. Companies that will be doing the drilling 
and the extraction and the excavation and the refining of the resource, plus all the infrastructure that is needed. I mean, imagine you, we need communications, we need power, we need transportation. So what you're seeing is not large companies that are trying to do everything. Like it happened a few years ago when the first companies that were talking about space mining wanted to do everything, identify it, extract, come back and sell it. Now you're seeing these companies that are positioning themselves to play a key role in this whole field. So there's many to keep an eye on it. And some of them are going to be so small that those names completely escape you. But you're going to start seeing companies that are designing a great drill or a, a nuclear power modular unit that you can utilize in the surface. So just be on the lookout for all of those companies and not just the big ones. The big ones will lead the way and, and big things will make the transportation possible. But then you will see dozens and dozens of these new companies. And of course, you know, you can't really talk about space resources without touching a little bit on the legal implications. So can you talk a little bit about how space law factors into the future of this field? Yeah, that's a, a very important aspect of this field, just like it's on Earth. In fact, I talked about at the beginning about how a resource has value-based utilization. And in order to utilize a resource, first of all, you have to figure out that you have a recoverable resource. And in order to do that, there's many aspects on Earth that are taken into consideration. Not only do you have to have the geological certainty that the resource is there, but the technical certainty of how you can extract it, but also the economical, is it economically feasible, the environmental one. Are you causing any problems from doing this? And you have to have the legal certainty. A company can identify that there's plenty of gold in certain region. It can identify that it has the technology to extract it. And the moment it starts going in and they'll find out that this belongs to somebody else, well, they're going to stop. And that completely kills the whole operation. You have to make sure that it's legal to do that. Same thing is going to happen in space. Yes, there's a limited number of resources, but when you start focusing on a destination in particular, you're going to figure out, first of all, is this doable? And there's right now a little precedent on this. Yes, there's the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 that was signed for by more than 100 countries. Then the Moon Treaty that was signed by just less than 20. Just because we started figuring out that space was getting more and more interesting and more possibilities of being used. So now what you have, it's not necessarily a push to change the big treaties, which have really good language in terms of that no country can own a celestial body. But what about specifics of, well, can they set up operations for a little while to extract the resource? Can they move it around? Can they sell it? Can they transport it without owning the celestial body? So now you start seeing private groups, a non-profit groups that are trying to do that, like the Hague Space Resources Governance Working Group that years ago, four years ago, started bringing more than 30 countries along to start talking about this. This has been elevated to the United Nations that is going to be talking about this. You have now countries taking decisions on their own. And now the Artemis Accords that are now trying to have uh, agreements between different countries to start looking at this. So now you start seeing as much as technology is being developed for space resources, you have a big push from the legal side to assure that it's legally permittable to do this. Once you have that, other companies will say, at least the legal part is, is done. Let's focus now on the economic issues and let's focus on the technology. So, so legal aspects are going to be as important as all of the other aspects of resources. Okay, so let's say that a plan for extracting and utilizing space resources checks the boxes legally, or at least reasonably so. How do you make sure that use still remains ethical? 
So in other words, how do you balance the demand for space resources in the near future from countries that are very highly developed, have highly developed space agencies against the future interests of some of the more emerging space agencies, especially those that exist in the global south? Yeah, now you're touching on a very delicate word, ethical. That brings idea of, is it good? Is this going to benefit humanity? Is it fair? And that is a more difficult problem to solve, but not impossible. We have learned from thousands of years of extracting resources on Earth that it has benefited us tremendously. Resources are the main engine of our technological society, and they have been the driving force behind exploration of economic growth. But at the same time, we have seen a lot of bad things happening in the process. Entire civilizations have been wiped out on this search to uh, extract and utilize resources. We are a very unique moment in history in terms that we're starting from scratch. This is something we humans cannot let go. We cannot let it pass. Yes, in the past it was people just going at it because they were trying to survive and they probably didn't know better. But now we know. And so we know that we have to do this from the economic point of view of how is this going to benefit us, but it has to be done in a fair way, in a responsible way. And this is a very unique time in which we hopefully are mature enough as humanity to start doing something like this and make sure that everybody benefits. You mentioned countries that have not never been involved in space, but that in a way they have benefited from resources. The very first resource that we used in space was just being out there, the view from above. And that gives us global communications and weather forecasts and global positioning systems. Everybody benefits. I don't care where you are in the world. If you're carrying a phone, you know where you are and you can use it. So in a way, we have benefit from that. Now that we're going after more concrete, more material type of resources, how is that we can benefit from this without having monopolies or countries completely owning that like we have done here on Earth? That's going to be tricky, but I think that's why it's important to have all these groups that I mentioned communicating with different countries. The Hay Group, in fact, started a socioeconomic study on this, and I had the uh, the fortune of participating on the very first meeting that happened in Africa uh, with 10 different countries, African countries, that started talking about how is it they can get involved in this field. I also participated on the very first webinar among Latin American countries that these are countries that have never been involved in space, that all of a sudden, given their expertise on resources on Earth, they see an opportunity. And we got to make sure we bring them along, that we use that expertise to identify, to extract the resources and also benefit from them. So this is going to take a lot of conversation among countries, how we can all play and how we can all benefit from this without restricting the activity. Uh, you cannot put too much regulation because then you stop the whole activity. But how is that we can do it so that everybody plays a role? I think space resources, more than anything else, brings the opportunity to have all these new countries participating. I think there's a huge you know, positive element of having that level of sort of global public input and enthusiasm for space exploration because, you know, kind of going back to the international and space law conversation here for a second, but really like one of the most powerful aspects, I think, of international law is countries, you know, voluntarily agreeing to basically subscribe to it, you know. And I think ultimately if we want to have people 
in agreement of responsible use of space resources and and also just broadly, you know, sort of what are our goals as a humanity in space? If we want that, you know, we really need to have those broader conversations and make sure that they are inclusive so that everybody feels as though they're being heard from the very beginning and that their perspectives are being valued and integrated into future plans, then then people are going to feel more buy-in to whatever we decide to do. And I think that that's just so important um, in terms of making sure that we do have a successful and sustained presence off Earth. And I think you touch on how the if countries can start just agreeing, okay, these are some of the rules, do you sign in for that? Yes, the Artemis Accords were criticized because they were started by the United States, but by now you have nine countries already signing up for that. Countries that are agreed to respect certain rules and, and everybody is welcome to suggest what are the rules and what's fair. I think if we reach that type of agreement among countries, it will be easier than anything else. Yes, there is a lot of issues to resolve, you know, who's going to enforce this and all that, but at least if you start agreeing on it, that means that you're ready to play by the rules. And I think that's a good way to go. Moving, I guess, in the direction of logistics and infrastructure of, of making this happen. In your opinion, what comes first, a mining operation on the moon or a base on the surface of the moon? Depends on what you mean by, by mining. I think it will be almost at the same time. Interestingly, and in living in Colorado, we, we are very aware of that, how this part of the country what started? They started by some people that ended up here and found a few nuggets of gold, got the word out, and thousands of people descended upon this region in 1859 and started mining for gold. That's the story that you usually hear, but what you don't hear is that what happened is that immediately when this very first settlers started coming, they started founding a place called Denver City and Golden City and all these places where they had to live. And so you have to have both if you want to have humans survive while they're doing their work. And so if you're talking about a lunar base, again, you're talking now something that has to be sustainable. And yes, at first you're going to try to bring the very first few tools to start working, but immediately you're going to have to concentrate on extracting, uh, let's say, the oxygen or, or just using the soil for landing pads, for berms and roads and all of those things that are going to be needed to create the base. That it's mining in a way. It's an operation in which you are extracting the resource for a certain purpose. So yes, at first you're going to see a lander and then all of a sudden people start looking at what's around and immediately they're going to start thinking, okay, well, let's, let's start a habitat here. You're mining at that point. So in a way, if it's going to be a, a base, something that you want to have there for a long period of time, I think both activities will come practically at the same time. Yeah, I agree. And, and I love your point too about, or your example of Denver and the gold rush and, and sort of the cities that developed as a result of that and sort of the parallel to space because there's an urban planning book, Instant Cities, that talks a little bit about this, how some of these Western cities in the U.S. just developed so rapidly as a result of people going West, you know, either on speculation, the gold rush, or just looking to start a new life. It's something that, you know, oftentimes when I'm talking about the idea of space urban planning or the idea of how we need to be thinking about the first lunar city or the first Martian city, you know, well before that's actually a reality. A lot of that stems from the fact that, you know, as you point out, 
a lot of these things are going to happen in tandem. It's sort of like a flywheel. Like once you get started, you're not going to have as much time then to be thoughtful and plan it out ahead of time. And, and of course, there's a lot of things that will adapt and change along the way as you understand the reality of your situation on the ground. But I do think what you're discussing here also, I think, makes a great case for why you would want to start thinking and having that planning mentality early, if only to say also that, you know, you don't have that same opportunity as you do on earth where, you know, of course it's not very good for the environment either, but at least on earth, if you really screw something up, it's already very difficult to change. I mean, we've seen that in U.S. cities and global cities, you know, where the planning was either not done very well or there just wasn't much planning at all. And then it's very hard to change that infrastructure. Well, then you look at space, it's going to be just magnitudes more difficult to change the infrastructure that starts to get established there. So I think that's why we want to have a little bit of that mindset ahead of time. And as you point out, it's further complicated by the fact that things aren't just happening. Okay, first, we're going to do this, then this, and and then third, you know, comes this step, because a lot of these things are going to be happening all at the same time. I mean, it's a pretty complex thing to think about, but I think it's very important. And so I, I definitely think you raised some great points there. You're absolutely right. It's key now to start figuring out how you're going to about this. You cannot predict what's going to happen later, but at least get started with some planning. And that's why a lot of thought is being taken now in terms of where are we going to land? You're going to see that it's not just random that in 2024 or 25, we're just going to end up landing on the poles. It's not just because somebody just liked that place. Is that you're looking for what's the right location for power, for communications, for resources, so that at least you are in, in a region that will give you the right resources to start developing whatever you want to do that. Yeah, maybe in the future we'll switch to another region, but at least we have enough to get started and then we'll learn after that. You know, the way I always think about it is that the planning mentality and how we think about that today, that's really what's preserving our optionality for the future. And so I think that the more flexible and the wider range of options that we can have for ourselves in future generations, I think certainly the better. Pivoting in, in another direction, what would be a barrier to future progress in the field of space resource utilization? What worries you in terms of a potential roadblock that might be you know, difficult for us to get around? I think that we already making a decision that resources are important. Yes, there's a lot of controversy. Should we be doing this or not? I think some people are arguing against this. Oh, we already have damaged Earth. We're going to do it down in space. Well, if you do it, in a, like I said, in a, in a responsible way, that can be avoided. But we have, in a way, already taken the decision we're going to go after this. And that is the very first important step that you have to take. We may have the decision, no, we don't want resources. All right. We just stick to whatever we've been doing for 60 years, sending probes and discovering a moon here and there or and just gathering scientific information. At some point, that is great. It is fascinating, and I'm all for that. But at some point, humans are going to say, well, what's in it for us? How is humanity going to benefit from this? And so that's where I see that going for resources is not necessarily inevitable, but it's, it's the next step. And barriers to this will be anything that impedes the use of resources. So like I mentioned before, what is that? Well, is it technology? Not necessarily. It actually will be more into those economic and legal issues that I was talking about. You're going to have to find 
a way to make it attractive economically and see how this is going to benefit us all. If it's only like we've been doing in the past, that government puts all the money and taxpayers pay for all it, and we go out there and we just discover things, that's not going to cut it. We're going to have to find things that are going to benefit. And then the legal aspects and the international component. Is this a competition or who wants to own the resources? That I see as a problem. So I would say that even those agreements and those things that we were talking about, the legal aspects, are going to be very important. That everybody agrees how we're going to do it. That's how everybody plays uh, in a fair way and then take it from there. I think that's the very first barrier we had to overcome. The rest, like I said, in terms of technology, it's just a matter of applying our creativity to do it. And we have done it for thousands of years. We moved at some point from the southern part of Africa and to a point to go to every corner of, of the planet. We've done it. We have overcome that, but we have to figure out how to do it so that everybody benefits from it. Okay, so allowing ourselves to really dream here for a second, what is your future vision for how humans will live and work in space and eventually become an interplanetary species? And when do you envision that happening? Do you think that we're already on our way? To look into the future, it's thrilling, but it's, it's a dangerous thing to predict anything. I would say that if you ask this question to somebody and they tell you what's going to be happening 50, 100 years from now, they're lying to you. It's a, <laughs> they're pretty much extrapolating their dreams or whatever technology we have right now on what can happen. It's good to have a dream of what you want to have. It is difficult to know how you're going to get there. So when you talk about uh, interplanetary species, the dream is, oh yeah, it would be great if humans can be living on the moon, living on Mars, having thriving colonies and people living on these places. How do we get there? Who gets to go and who gets to live on the moon and Mars? That's more complex. So it's a matter of something you mentioned at the beginning. What's science fiction? What's futuristics? What's real? Personally, and, and this is... Uh, something you probably you'll be surprised about that. I, I did read science fiction when I was a kid, but I didn't follow up on that. I'm, I'm not a, a big, big fan of science fiction. And probably the reason I liked it when I was a kid, one of the first books was just From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. I was excited about that. I, was, I loved that book. But I read it at a time when these things were happening. And so I could see the romantic view from the late 1800s of how these people were traveling to the moon, and how Jules Verne was able to recapture everything that happened 100 years after that. But I was seeing it happening. I was seeing how we were landing on the moon. So it was great to see that connection. But when I start reading a new science fiction book and I read things that are going to happen 200 years from now, it's great. Maybe it can give you some ideas. And in fact, science fiction informed some of the thinkers and the doers that made space possible. But personally... I'm not focused on the future, Brit. I'm focused on enabling it. That's the thing that drives me every day. How can I set things up so that these dreams happen at some point? What is that we need to do now? It may not be perfect, but we'll at least put it in a, in a place that resources will allow us to at first have a small base on the moon and then start seeing how we can extract the resources. Once we do that and demonstrate that, how can you do it in a larger scale? and set the scene here of what's going to happen after that. That's not going to be my responsibility. My responsibility is put it to a point that is ready to go for the next step. 
And I want to do it again in a fair way, in a responsible, in a sustainable way. And I think you can understand that you mentioned something about the celestial citizen objective, which is to, to design an equitable and just future. That's what I want to set up and then let future take uh, care after that. You don't know what technology is going to happen. You don't know when fusion may come along or when new propellants and new means of transportation will come along. It will disrupt your thinking in no time. Work towards enabling that future. Dream, but leave something for, for the next generation. Just try to do your best to do that. I love that, enabling the future concept, because you're right. I mean, it's really about setting the stage for future generations. And I think that's such a powerful way of thinking about it, that we're living in a time where, where we could play this really pivotal role in terms of progressing and moving forward in that direction. And I think it's interesting, too, because, I mean, going to a lot of different conferences and things like that in the space industry, I will say sometimes it does feel as though a lot of people's individual drive to make progress is because I think there's a lot of people out there who really like they themselves, they want to go to space before, you know, the end of their lifetime. They want to go to the moon or retire on Mars or, or something like that, which is great. It's good for us all to have our own individual dreams. But I think that the important thing to remember is, as you point out, you want to make sure you're doing it in a responsible and fair way. And so I think that at least resonates a lot with me and I'm sure with a lot of the people who will be listening to this. But this idea that it's more important to just enable that future for people and make sure that we're doing it the right way, even if it takes us an extra year or two or something like that. It's better to make sure that we're doing it as thoughtfully as possible. And so I couldn't agree more with that statement. And I think that's why what you're doing is very important. If people look at the word celestial citizen, they're looking at the dream. Yes, I would like to be a celestial citizen. Oh, yeah, we will be living in this place and we will be doing great things in Mars. Yeah, but how do you make it happen? I commend you on, on trying to enable that future that we all see as you know, the future of humanity. Well, thank you. Okay, so on hell, we're going to try something a little different now. This is going to be a lightning round game of this or that. So I'm going to give you two options and you can only pick one. No explanations, no commentary. You just have to go with your gut. Does that sound good? All right. You're going to put me in really quick? Yep. Yep. Real quick. Okay. Okay. Moon or Mars? Moon. Apollo or Artemis? Artemis. Lunar mining or asteroid mining? Lunar mining. Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin? Neil Armstrong. SpaceX or Blue Origin? <laughs> SpaceX. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. The Martian or Interstellar? The Martian. Rocket Man or Space Oddity? Rocket Man. All right. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you, Angel, for joining Celestial Citizen Podcast. It was great to talk about this exciting field of space resources, obviously very near and dear to my heart, and also to discuss humanity's ability to live off the land as we explore the rest of the solar system. Thank you so much, Brady. It's been a pleasure and keep pushing to uh, making humanity part of, of our uh, celestial sphere. Three, two, one. We have liftoff. And it take you on a little trip, my supersonic ship, such a disposal if you feel so inclined. All right. Don't travel faster than light. That little Elon Musk will be left in the dust, so all right. 
And to all you listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Celestial Citizen Podcast. This episode would not be possible without the terrific work of this show's editor, Victor Figueroa. Thank you, Victor. Also, a very special thank you to Graham Clark, who created the amazing intro and outro music for this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Celestial Citizen, and I hope you are, then check out celestialcitizen.com. You can also follow along on Twitter at Celestial Citizen and Instagram at The Celestial Citizen. And be sure to sign up for the Celestial Citizen newsletter on Substack. You can find the link to this on our website. A major component of Celestial Citizen is feedback and public participation. We really want to hear what you have to say, so please let us know what you think about humanity's future in space and what it should look like. Please share your voice and your unique perspective on social media, or if you prefer, all of the Celestial Citizen articles can also be found on Medium. So drop a comment and join the conversation. If you love today's podcast, please have your friends and family subscribe on whatever device or platform you listen to podcasts on and leave a stellar review so others can get hooked as well. That's all for now, Celestial Citizens. I'll be back next week for another episode. In the meantime, don't be afraid to take up space. Whoa!